This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I wanted today just to review briefly the results of the uh, election. Uh, Steve said that uh, my uh, calls were correct. I wasn't really uh, uh, calling it myself. I was simply reporting on what the major polling uh, operations uh, indicated. And one of them uh, was particularly accurate, and that was the Cook Political Report, Charlie Cook's organization. And um, they track every single one of the uh, congressional districts, and they predicted that the Democrats would win between 30 and 40 seats. And uh, sure enough, uh, right now it's uh, still a couple undecided, but it looks very much like, well, it's certain that the Democrats will be somewhere between 35 and 38 and, or, or 9. So that was a very uh, good, very accurate um, uh, prediction. On the Senate race, I was uh, unsure. Again, all of the uh, uh, pollsters, including the Cook Report, said they thought it was a very tough uh, uh, job for the Democrats uh, to get control of the Senate. They figured the Republicans would win and keep control, and sure enough, they did by a couple of uh, votes. So what I want to do today is just look briefly at these elections and what they may signify both for this election and for the uh, future, and particularly for 2020, and then look at the uh, prospects, as Steve said, of what can be accomplished uh, uh, in uh, this uh, two-year term before the um, elections, now that we have a Democratic-controlled uh, uh, House, but a Republican-controlled Senate. Uh, and, of course, I have to start by saying that although I imagine myself being Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House, um, we're still not sure that Nancy will get the, that uh, position. It requires a majority of the uh, present and voting members, and there could be as many as 435. Uh, therefore, she needs uh, 218, I think it is, of the uh, uh, to, to become speaker. And uh, right now, a, a group of uh, and, and the, the Democrats uh, uh, will have uh, uh, more than that, it looks like. But 16 of the, um, the Democrats have signed a letter saying that they intend to vote against her. And there are three or four others who might uh, join them. The problem, of course, for the opposition to Nancy Pelosi is they don't have a, uh, an alternate candidate. She's so far the only one, with the possible uh, exception of a woman named Fudd. I, keep, I think of her as the fudge factor um, who, um, from uh, the Midwest who may decide to run against her. Um, my my uh, guess is that one way or another, uh, she will become speaker again. Uh, the objection to her is that uh, she's been in power for too long, as indeed are her colleagues. Nancy is uh, a mere 78 years old, in my view, rather young. But uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, some of the younger people are upset about that. And uh, a number of them are forming what they call a progressive caucus, and um, they um, are trying to put put pressure on uh, the Democratic leadership to adopt a somewhat more radical uh, left-wing uh, program. So it remains to be seen whether she will prevail. I think she will. I think it would be an absolute disaster for the Democrats to fall apart now that they finally have control of the uh, House. Um, but it may be that they will. the, the progressive wing will think differently. Um, 
there are a number of things about this election that are interesting, but um, uh, I pointed out beforehand that one of the um, questions, one of the key issues of the election would be whether Trump could still command enough support to keep Republican losses uh, low. Um, he did that, of course, in, with respect to the Senate, uh, but he was operating in fertile territory. The areas where Trump's candidates won were very red uh, states. Uh, the Republicans were upset uh, in uh, Nevada and in uh, uh, Arizona. Um, so it was a, a mixed record on that score. Um, and the second issue is whether the Democrats could turn out more than the usual number of midterm voters. And as I pointed out last time, the usual midterm turnout varies from between uh, 35 to 40 percent, not much more. Uh, whereas in a presidential race, you get uh, close to 60 percent. And um, uh, a lot of the failing turnout has to do with Democratic voters, that is, voters who tend to be Democratic, minority voters and young people. Well, as you probably know, this election was really very different. <coughs> there was a turnout approaching 50 percent, which is very rare for a midterm uh, election. And one of the reasons the turnout was so high uh, is that you had uh, relatively high turnout among uh, younger voters and among uh, minorities. And by the way, one uh, aspect of that is what happened in Texas. Texas has traditionally had the lowest voter turnout in midterm elections of any state, 30 percent. This time it was, again, close to 50 percent, thanks, I think, especially to Beto O'Rourke, but, of course, uh, the, uh, the turnout did not simply reflect uh, the fact that more pro-democratic voters were voting. It's also the fact that uh, more Republican voters came out for fear that the Democrats would uh, achieve a blue wave. Uh, and so you had very high turnout on, on both sides. One interesting thing, of course, has to do with the, the, what, what uh, happened to women. And here is a chart from the New York Times about changing, uh, changes in women's vote by party from 2016. And take a look at it, and you'll see that if you just look at all women, uh, the Democrats went up by something like five percentage points. Um, uh, the uh, Republicans were slightly uh, lower. In other words, more um, women tended to vote. Then white unmarried women, especially a strong uh, change for the Democrats, white women with a college degree, and even, um, uh, well, uh, I should say that white women, white working class women, uh, tended to be on the Republican side, uh, as, uh, but less so than they were uh, last time. So in short, um, this um, uh, was a generally good election for the Democrats in some significant part because of uh, women's uh, votes. But as I foresaw, the uh, election left us a house divided. The trend toward intense partisanship is decades old. Some people date it to the Gingrich Revolution when things got really uh, uh, very polarized. But it's been greatly reinforced by Trump, who is clearly the most polarizing president we have had in recent times. Um, 
I, in, in this lecture, I'm not going to say terribly much about uh, President Trump. It's easy to be diverted to talk about nothing else when you're talking about American politics. Uh, I do want to point out a couple of things. One of them is the statement he made with respect to the California fires. Uh, that really was a shocker to me. Uh, he said that it had to do with uh, bad forest management and that if California didn't uh, straighten, uh, get its act straight, uh, he was going to uh, remove federal funding for California's forest management. I guess he just didn't know that only 3% of the California forests are managed by the state of California. 60% are managed by the federal government. So if he really wants to get after somebody for forest management, he should look to the agriculture department, not to uh, the state of California. The other thing we know, as many experts have told us, is that these fires were not, strictly speaking, forest fires. They were far fires, especially the, the big one that, that wiped out paradise, in uh, areas adjacent to forests, which had been cleared by logging, and uh, they started in chaparral and brush, and they may have been started by electrical uh, faults, and that's why the stock of Pacific Gas and Electric plummeted the other day because of fear that it would be held liable for this these fires as it was for, for earlier ones. So, I mean... It's, it's really um, uh, frustrating to have to deal with a president who is so ill-informed about uh, major events uh, like this. But as I said, I'm not going to go into detail on this. <laughs> the, the, the trend, as I say, toward intense partisanship is really very concerning. The Democrats have become, uh, as I say here, the party of metropolitan, college-educated, higher-income, culturally liberal and minority voters. Forty percent of the voters uh, now of the Democratic vote is from minority voters, who together, I think, form an emerging majority. They form an emerging majority because uh, you're dealing with younger um, voters um, and you're dealing with minority voters who are becoming a, more, a stronger percentage of uh, the electorate. The Republicans are more the party of white Southerners, older rural and small-town residents, blue-collar workers, evangelicals, gun owners, ranchers, and the very wealthy. And that uh, is uh, the coalition, of course, that Trump has been uh, appealing to. Now, uh, my colleague Gary Jacobson has done a very nice paper that he presented to the uh, American Political Science Association, uh, and I want to read to you uh, from that, uh, from his uh, paper, to give you an idea of how things have become uh, polarized. He said, those appalled by Trump before the election have seen their worst expectations confirmed. He has mounted an assault on Obama's entire legacy on health care, environmental protection, financial regulation, taxes, fiscal policy, immigration, and foreign trade. And I think as you think about each of those, you'll see why he mentions them. The traffic in white identity politics, xenophobia, racism, and misogyny that characterized Trump's campaign has continued unabated. He continues to launch crude tirades against his opponents and critics in politics and the media and to target Hillary Clinton as if the election were not history. Uh, the other day when he was complaining about uh, the admiral who ran uh, the, uh, uh, the raid that uh, got Osama bin Laden, he said, ah, he's a Hillary supporter. That is enough to dis dismiss anybody. 
Um, trolling Democrats by blaming them for his own policy disasters. For example, splitting young children from immigrant parents at the border is standard practice. Any institution that declines to do Trump's bidding, the judiciary, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the intelligence services, at times the Congressional Republican Party and always the news media, finds its legitimacy under attack. Crowning it all is Trump's unending stream of transparent, self-serving lies. It's no mystery, then, why Democrats not only disapprove of Trump's job performance in overwhelming numbers, but do so strongly when given the option. For example, in the 13 Quinnipiac polls of registered voters taken so far within 2018, and this is written before the election, an average of 93% of Democrats say they disapprove of Trump's performance, 86% strongly. But, he goes on, Trump has also generally met the expectations of the Republicans who voted for him. Almost everything he has said or done as president has catered exclusively to the coalition that elected him, its white populist component in particular, but also to small government and religious conservatives. Uh, most of his supporters evidently share his opinions and sensibilities, enjoy his in-your-face responses to critics and disdain for political correctness, and cheer his anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant projects and American First rhetoric, America First rhetoric and policy initiatives. Conservative Christians celebrate his Supreme Court nominations and defense of religious freedom as well as the transfer of the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Conventional small government and corporate Republicans, if less comfortable with Trump's rhetoric and style than his blue-collar enthusiasts and more doubtful about his protectionist moves, nonetheless appreciate his assaults on Obama's regulatory legacy and success in cutting taxes on corporations and the wealthy. Just as doubts about Trump's suitability for the office did not prevent them from voting for him in 2016, many ordinary Republicans, like most of their elected leaders, have so far accepted Trump's cringeworthy behavior as a tolerable price for his support of their policy uh, agenda. So I think that uh, that uh, will give you an idea of how this election uh, shaped up and um, uh, uh, how people... uh, Reacted, As you know, the uh, Democrats wound up with control of the House. The uh, Republicans uh, uh, retained control of the uh, Senate. One thing I want to emphasize that's important for 2020, uh, it's been mentioned by other commentators, is that uh, three states that were key to Trump's uh, electoral uh, triumph, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, all turned blue. Florida went purple and could go blue. Now that 1.4 million felons, most of them poor, half of them black or Hispanic, will be eligible to vote. As you may know, Florida passed a referendum item which enabled uh, those, the people who had served their sentences to apply for uh, restoration of their voting rights. Um, and, you know, if, if presumably all of them voted as they customarily do in terms of their demography, it would be a sweep for the Democrats. The Fact is, however, that uh, studies show that only about 17 percent of them are likely to vote. So it won't have that big uh, um, an, uh, an effect. Um, now, so that's all, that's all I really want to say, except maybe for one uh, thing that segues into what I want to talk about with uh, Pelosi becoming speaker. The Democrats did well, in part because Pelosi and the the others who led the party refused to take Trump's bait. 
Um, she uh, and the rest of the party ignored his issues, the caravan, Kavanaugh, economic nationalism. Instead, the Democrats' congressional campaign focused on their key issue, which, of course, is health care. And this uh, turned out to move voters um, even more than Trump's appeal to their emotions and, uh, the, the, and the strong economy. Those areas with, with uh, greatest economic gains actually voted for uh, the Democrats. So that's kind of interesting. And now, to, now I want to turn to why the Democrats should elect Pelosi speaker. First of all, she knows or she shows she's shown she knows how to get things done in the House. Paul Krugman, the economist and New York Times columnist, has called her the greatest speaker of modern times. Uh, he pointed out that during the Obama presidency, she achieved passage of Obamacare, uh, the $840 billion stimulus package, the Dodd-Frank legislation, and the Lilly Ledbetter Act uh, that produces fair, play for, uh, fair pay, I should say, for women. And as the New York Times said editorially, she's the best herder of cats the Democrats uh, have. Um, uh, now... Uh, as I said before, she is under some pressure from uh, on the part of younger colleagues and so on. Um, and I think she should let it be known to them, to her colleagues, that um, if elected speaker, she would intend to serve only through the 2020 presidential election and meanwhile mentor potential new leaders to take over the party leadership. And that applies to the other House Democratic leaders, uh, Hoyer and uh, Clyburn, who are also um, uh, getting on in years. So uh, with, with that uh, qualification, however, uh, I think it would be well, the, the Democrats would be well advised to pick her. Now, the truth is there is a progressive wing of the party uh, represented by people like uh, New Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and um, they are a potential uh, obstacle to unity. And unless she can keep them in line and show that the Democrats can govern in a way that unifies the country, uh, the Democrats will risk, risk losing the momentum they have established. And you can have a, a situation in which the um, progressive wing of the party becomes a kind of Tea Party of the left, uh, making trouble for the leadership, much as the Tea Party uh, hounded uh, Boehner and now uh, Ryan. So that's a, that's a real risk in the party. I, uh, I, I think it uh, would be wise if they avoided it. What's animating the progressives? I think basically what's animating the progressives is the feeling that the Democratic Party has um, lost its essential message, which is to be the party of the downtrodden, to be the party that worries about economic um, inequality. And instead, it's um, made deals with Wall Street the way Hillary Clinton did, the way Bill Clinton did. Um, and um, in general, it's more concerned about uh, uh, triangulating, in other words, finding some middle course than with championing uh, the, uh, the poor. And remember that uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, was led by uh, the Depression and by forces within his own party 
to uh, go after the economic royalists and uh, uh, and pass all kinds of legislation that uh, promoted trade unionism, that promoted uh, social security, and promoted uh, lots of other things that dealt with the serious problem of uh, inequality in the party. And younger um, uh, Democrats like Beto O'Rourke, for example, have argued that, uh, uh, as he put it, the only things you're going to find in the middle of the road are yellow lines and dead armadillos. Um, so uh, their argument is that the Democrats really have to stand for a serious alternative to the um, Republican Party and its acceptance of uh, economic uh, inequality. Um, uh, I, I could go on and on about that. I've written an article for the Political Science Quarterly about the uh, findings of the Piketty and others, uh, and, and I have some sympathy, therefore, with the progressive uh, arguments. But I do think that there's a limit to what the Democrats can accomplish uh, without the presidency and in, with a Senate likely to be in opposition. And therefore, I think they would do best to be guided by what um, the Democratic voters tend to uh, want them to do. And if you look at this uh, chart, you can see that uh, one of the things people are most concerned about is uh, uh, affordability of health care, drug addiction, ethics in government, affordability of a college education, the way the system operates, uh, the less, less so the budget deficit, the gap between rich and poor, gun violence, violent crime, wages and the cost of living, racism, um, uh, and uh, climate change, illegal immigration, and so on. So it seems to me that that's the way the Democrats should try to frame their agenda. And if they do that, they're not certainly not going to pass uh, all of the bills that they would like to pass, but they will establish a record on which the campaign in 2020 can be waged. And unless they do that, um, they will lose a lot of the momentum I think uh, uh, they now have. They've raised a lot of expectations, uh, and nobody expects them to uh, fulfill those expectations completely. But uh, I think people are expecting them to make an effort and to make a down payment. The other thing that I think uh, are important before I get to the top priorities, I, I emphasized this last time and I'll emphasize it again. This is not a parliamentary system. Uh, when you have gridlock, when you have polarization, when you have intense partisanship, uh, it means that you can't get anything done. It becomes a, a recipe for inefficient government, all the more so if you have an opposition between the executive and the legislature. And that's what we've been experiencing with some rare exceptions for the last uh, two years. And we could see it again. So it's really incumbent upon the Democratic leadership to make its best effort to get, uh, to, to, to get some kind of compromise with the opposition on issues where compromise uh, is possible. I'll mention a few right off the bat. Um, uh, you know, one of them has already been mentioned that there is a, that Trump has supported uh, a form of prison reform. It's not a comprehensive form. It's simply one that would give judges more discretion with respect to sentencing nonviolent defenders. And an awful lot of the prison population in this country, and we have the largest in the world, uh, is composed of nonviolent offenders. And this would enable the judges to reduce the sentences of those already in prison and uh, to uh, uh, avoid uh, these harsh sentences for uh, new offenders. And that is extremely important because... Um, 
the, the prisons have become a kind of school for crime. And people who do nothing but uh, go into prison often uh, have nothing to do when they get outside except to revert uh, it's called recidivism, to their criminal uh, activities. Uh, we need to do a much better job with uh, our prisons, and this would be a step in that direction. And surprisingly, Trump has agreed to that. I say surprisingly because much of Trump's base is in favor of just putting people in prison and uh, throwing away the key. Uh, but uh, on this issue, he seems to be amenable. Something could have been done in this session, but uh, Mitch McConnell decided, for whatever reason, not to bring the bill forward. Uh, I would think that one of the things the Democrats might try to do in the next uh, Congress is to work with the Republicans on that bill. A second uh, thing that's been on the agenda for a long time is infrastructure. Can't Trump campaigned on the idea that he was going to be a great builder of infrastructure. And we have terrible problems in uh, our uh, tunnels and roads and bridges and the like. And some of them are, of course, being addressed by the states, but they need federal um, assistance very badly. Uh, and uh, that's something I'll point out in a moment that the Democrats could work with the Republicans uh, uh, on. And there may indeed be um, other examples of that. I'll cover some of them as we look at specifics. So I think these should be the top new priorities. First, health care. Shore up Obamacare by guaranteeing affordable coverage by insurers for people with pre-existing conditions. This turned out to be a major issue in the election campaign. And the Republicans made it an issue by not uh, doing what they said they were going to do, repeal and replace. Instead, they chipped away at Obamacare and they didn't replace it with anything else. And the result is that people are losing their coverage for pre-existing conditions or the rates are going sky high. And you can only get uh, that kind of coverage if you mandate it and if you require everybody to have health care. So the Democrats are, certainly should be uh, making an effort to rectify that, the problem that the Republicans have created. Will the Republicans agree to it? Will they go along? Uh, I'll, I'll say later on that I think a lot of these things, a lot of the prospects for cooperation have to do with whether Trump remains popular enough to threaten the, the Congress people and senators uh, if, with being primaried if they don't toe his line. Uh, if they begin to feel that he's not a benefit but a liability, then they may be much more willing to uh, cooperate. And this is an issue which the polls show very clearly concerns uh, a great majority of American voters. Uh, the other thing they the Congress might do, if they wanted to uh, uh, kind of listen to the progressive caucus, is to allow people below 65 to buy Medicare coverage. Or lower eligibility for Medicare to age 55 or 60 as a step toward universal coverage. Bernie Sanders, uh, who is the, the hero of the Progressive Caucus, is, of course, in favor of Medicare for all, which is, in effect, a single-payer system. And while all sorts of alarms have been raised about how much it's going to cost and how uh, it'll bring us to socialism and all of that, uh, an awful lot of American people are beginning to understand that the current system enriches the health insurance companies and doesn't give them adequate coverage. And uh, Medicare, meanwhile, works well. And uh, uh, maybe that uh, that's a good way to go. So I think one of the things they might consider is moving toward uh, uh, a new system of universal coverage. 
How to pay for it? Well, one thing they could do is enable Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And once again, President Trump on this issue has said he would like to see uh, the United States do um, what European countries do. And he said, let's take an average of what European com- uh, countries pay for drugs and make that our standard and allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Why has Medicare not been allowed to negotiate drug prices so far? Very simple. Lobbying. There's so much lobbying by the pharmaceutical industry that uh, Medicare, when the, when the bill was passed on this issue, Medicare was prevented from negotiating uh, drug prices. Every other country does it. Now, a uh, quick caveat, and that is that one reason uh, that we have high drug prices is that we bear the cost of the development of new drugs, and the pharmaceutical companies have a point in this respect. Uh, when it's Merck or Pfizer or any of the other big pharma companies, it costs billions of dollars to to develop new drugs. We want them to develop these drugs, uh, but uh, the, the, they have to make profit on the other drugs in order to afford the research that they do. But they don't have to afford all the advertising they do on television to get us to adopt drugs that uh, have only marginal uh, benefits. So there are ways of regulating this issue which will respect the need for um, uh, uh, drug uh, development at the same time as we deal with the price issue. Similarly, uh, one of the things that um, that we have to do is to step up efforts to deal with opioid addiction. That's going to require research, and it's going to require uh, clinical activities in in all of the states, and it's a very serious uh, problem. Uh, Again, this can be handled by committees on energy and commerce and ways and means. And by the way, one of the objections to Pelosi's uh, style of government is that she centralized too much power in the speakership. And the, the, the request is, therefore, that she devolve some of it, at least, to the uh, committees. And that's probably something she would be well advised to do. Second, comprehensive immigration reform. Now, the likelihood that we will get comprehensive immigration reform from this Congress, including the Senate and from the president, is probably close to zero. But we could make the DACA dreamers eligible for residency and subsequent citizenship. If necessary, they could do what Schumer and Pelosi tried to do previously, to appease Trump by offering funds for border security, and he can interpret it to mean extending the border wall. Uh, that's going to take $25 billion. If they offered him a billion, it would be worth it to get uh, a deal done with respect to the uh, dreamers. The other thing we need to do, and this has been proposed by people like uh, Jay Johnson uh, uh, from the Obama administration, and that is if we want to really do something about emigration from Honduras and Guatemala and those other countries, we should simply offer more aid to them for employment and security under the supervision of the Organization of American States. You don't give it simply to corrupt governments to fatten their uh, uh, payrolls, but you can give it to nonprofit, uh, uh, you know, non-government organizations and uh, those sponsored by the Organization of American States. And if they could do that, if they could provide for employment and better security under their supervision, then it would act uh, to dampen uh, uh, emigration. After all, what was the point of 
NAFTA in that regard. NAFTA helped Mexico develop uh, its own jobs, and as a result, we get very little uh, immigration, legal or illegal, from Mexico these days. Uh, and we could, we could offer new aid to Mexico, to Costa Rica, to other Central American countries to accept uh, refugees. Otherwise, uh, the, the caravans are going to continue to come, and uh, we will have a serious problem. I think we can absorb uh, some of those uh, immigrants, uh, and we ought to absorb uh, refugees. But there's no question that we could uh, that it will become a flood unless we help uh, other countries. And by the way, the same is true for the Europeans. The Europeans are getting swamped with Im- immigrants from Africa, and the reason is that they haven't uh, had the good sense to open a Marshall Plan for Africa, just as we opened the Marshall Plan for them after World War II. If they did that, and if they provided better uh, guidance in the way of uh, public health planning and education, they might stem some of that tide of uh, immigrants. Finally, offer residency and eventual citizenship to those here illegally, coupled with tightened security on border crossing and visa enforcement, and more stress on admitting better educated immigrants. The Republicans have argued that family reunification these days is a bad idea, if only because we don't need a lot of unskilled uh, labor. But we do need skilled workers, like Canada does with its point program, or like Germany does. And I think, again, here's a case where you might be able to make some compromise. Adopt changes in the immigration policy that would put more of a premium on better educated uh, immigrants in exchange for getting rid of the terrible problem we now have of 11 million people here illegally, almost half of them because they've overstayed their visas. We are not going to deport them. We're not going to kick them out. They're living in the shadows and they need to be regularized. So what I would suggest if I were, again, dreaming of being Nancy Pelosi, uh, is that she work on comprehensive immigration reform knowing full well that there's no way that it could be all achieved now, but that some of it might be achieved, like the DACA part of it, and it would be a kind of down payment and an indication to the American people that the Democrats know what they're doing and that they have a position with respect to immigration rather than simply reacting to everything uh, Trump uh, says and claims. Climate change. That's one of the issues that uh, I showed you people are concerned about. There's a growing recognition that it's serious. Scientists like the people at our Scripps Institution of Oceanography have been warning about it for years. By the way, Roger Revelle in 1957 wrote the first paper on this uh, subject. Uh, The latest findings are that it's getting worse and worse, and that the window of opportunity for doing anything about it is uh, closing. The Trump administration is doing nothing about it. What should the Congress do? Restore, uh, first of all, the the, uh, uh, Select Committee on Climate Change. The House had that committee. It ought to have another one. One of the things that a select committee does is it holds hearings. And at the hearings, you get people to testify, and that testimony educates not only people in Congress, but the public as a whole. And we badly need that because there's an awful lot of sheer misunderstanding, and it's fed by um, uh, senators uh, like the senator from Oklahoma uh, who held a snowball in in his hand and said, what's this with uh, global warming? Uh, I can have a snowball in Washington. And he's called it a hoax and all that stuff. Well, uh, it's not a hoax. It's a scientific finding, and uh, 98% of the world's climate scientists are very concerned about it, and there are ways of dealing with it by 
by establishing carbon taxes, by doing lots of other things. But you have to have the foundation laid in public opinion so that you can do it. The other thing I think they should do is require the Environmental Protection Agency and other agencies to lower carbon emissions in order to address global warming. Right now, the EPA uh, uh, is, is moving in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, it's about to get a, a, a coal industry lobbyist in charge. And uh, they, all they're, they're trying to do is roll back all of these uh, emissions uh, standards. And uh, we ought to go in exactly the opposite direction. And the uh, uh, Congress can do that by telling the EPA, by passing legislation, telling the EPA to do that. I'm beginning to think they ought to change the uh, the, the the, the name of EPA to Environmental Degradation Agency, not Environmental <laughs> Protection Agency. Second, every uh, economist, especially the conservative economist, has called for enacting a tax on the use of carbon fuels, possibly with proceeds used to promote transition to renewables and infrastructure, possibly with the carbon tax rebated. But uh, one way or another, we've got to do something that will uh, discourage the use of uh, fossil fuels. Okay? Infrastructure. As I said before, there should be bipartisan support for a bill to repair bridges and tunnels as a first installment on a more comprehensive program. Pay for it by reversing some of the temporary corporate tax uh, reduction. Um, uh, set up a public-private infrastructure bank to raise funds for additional projects. One of the things I thought when uh, Obama became uh, president was that he should have invited Mitt Romney to the White House and asked him to run a a public-private infrastructure bank. And that's something that appeals to uh, companies, companies that have money to invest, couldn't put the money into these funds. You do have to be damn careful that it isn't a boondoggle, but uh, it's a way of raising money other than from the public treasury. And one way or another, we simply need to do more about infrastructure. Taxation. Revise the Income Tax Act passed by the last Congress to allow full deduction of state and local taxation on income tax, the so-called SALT tax, which hits people in California, New York, New Jersey. And one thing they're discovering is that uh, the the Republicans lost a lot of uh, votes, including in Orange County, because people were damned upset about losing their deductions, the deductibility of uh, state income tax. Now, how would you make up for the lost revenue? increasing taxes on upper-income recipients and on corporations that use uh, the income they gain from lower taxes to buy back their own stock so as to give them an incentive to raise employee pay and invest in business expansion. And the last time we were here, um, the question came up of why we shouldn't uh, respect the, the tax revisions because by lowering corporate taxes, we gave them money to invest in job creation. Well, uh, as Ted Groves pointed out uh, to me afterward, I should have mentioned it, um, most of the tax cuts that the uh, corporations uh, have gotten have not gone into creating jobs. They haven't been reinvested. They've simply been put into buying back stock and raising dividends. Uh, so it's not having the economic benefit it should have. And what I'm saying is give them an incentive to raise employee pay and invest in business expansion by going back and increasing taxes on uh, corporations. Gun regulation. Americans now virtually all believe that background checks should be required. The, the NRA has managed to uh, inhibit any effort on this by going after uh, all the Republican representatives and some of the Democrats. But 
there's no reason why Pelosi can't try to get a serious uh, piece of gun regulation through the House, if not through the Senate. And the bill should ban the sale and ownership of automatic and semi-automatic weapons and bump stocks. Those are the things that turn semi-automatic rifles into automatic rifles, except for the armed forces and police. Trade policy. Uh, the car, the uh, Congress is not likely to do very much on trade policy. This is something that's being done by the executive. And, of course, it involves that terrific uh, fight we're now having with China. Uh, but Trump has renegotiated the deals with Canada and Mexico. He claims that uh, that was a terrible deal. And all he's done is modify that terrible deal. There are only marginal changes. And Congress ought to uh, approve it. At least that's something in the way of helping trade policy. Sanctions. Um, the president uh, apparently is not going to uh, uh, even accept the report of the CIA to the effect that uh, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia uh, ordered the assassination of uh, Khashoggi. Um, but I think everybody else should recognize that he did it and should not tolerate it. Uh, it's time to invoke sanctions against him and against the Russians responsible for the poisoning of exiles, an effort to impede investigations into those crimes. Uh, this is a very serious problem of international relations, and uh, uh, we uh, ought to deal with it. The initials of uh, the crown prince are MBS, and of course he's rightly being called Mr. Bonesaw these days. Um, restore checks on financial industry. Uh, revive the loosened Dodd-Frank sanctions. The Dodd-Frank sanctions were put in place so that we wouldn't have a repeat without any means of dealing with it of the 2008 uh, Great uh, Recession. And uh, it's a serious danger if we uh, forget that lesson and simply allow the banks to do all their trickery with derivatives and the like. And you need uh, Dodd-Frank uh, sanctions. And similarly, you need to strengthen the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It, it's still a scandal that we have so many poor people who are forced to use these check uh, cashing services because the banks won't let them open up accounts and they pay ridiculous, uh, ridiculous high interest rates. And that's what a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is for. Check Trump's efforts to dismantle arms control and develop new nuclear weapons assigned to the Committee on Armed Services. Now, this is something that really has to be done by the Senate. The House's role is with uh, uh, financial bills more than anything else, and they will need cooperation with the Senate. I don't know that they'll get it, but we have been warned by former Secretary Schultz and by many others that by walking away from the Intermediate Forces Agreement and by uh, proposing to develop new nuclear weapons and even a space nuclear force, uh, we're only going to revive the Cold War uh, and make it even even worse, this time involving not just Russia, but China and an awful lot of other proliferators, including Iran. Promote opportunity by subsidizing advanced education. Bernie Sanders has called for college education for all. Michael Bloomberg has made it possible for at least the, the students who apply to Johns Hopkins but by, by that incredible gift of $1.8 billion. But one way or another, we have to recognize that if we're going to compete successfully with China in the development of new um, uh, industries, and if we're going to develop an educated uh, uh, public, we have to subsidize advanced education. And I would think one way we could do it is to initiate a voluntary public service program so that students could spend two years in public service, and in exchange they would get education vouchers um, or uh, uh, simply get their student loans paid down.
passed the Equality Act protecting against gender discrimination. Uh, a lot of people are worried about what's happening to transgender people and also to women. And we need to amend the Voting Rights Act uh, to comply with a, de- uh, uh, with a decision that gutted the bill's key enforcement provision. That's very much on the agenda. Thirteenth, uh, require all states to adopt nonpartisan districting. Uh, as you know, California has nonpartisan districting. The Democrats suffered most from this because the gerrymandering in Texas, North Carolina, and elsewhere has cost them uh, seats in Congress. It's now uh, figured that uh, instead of just earning, let's say, 37 seats, they would have gotten uh, seven more if there hadn't been uh, any gerrymandering in a lot of states. Um, And uh, this is something that Democrats do. They did it in Maryland. Everybody does it. It's time that it ended. California has ended it. Four states this year voted uh, to establish nonpartisan districting. And Congress could simply mandate that everybody uh, has to do it. <clears throat> Adopt a law requiring the president and vice president to divest any business holdings upon election to prevent possible conflict of interest. Now, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm afraid Congress is going to be preoccupied by is investigations into Trump and his family and his associates. And while there's perfectly good reason to do that, uh, I think it would play into his hands uh, and it would not serve the country's interest. What the Congress needs to do is restrict its investigations to some areas and let Mueller do his work and otherwise focus on the positive agenda that the Democrats uh, need. But one thing we could do for the future would be to require the president and vice president to divest their holdings. Restore Civil Rights Act protection of minority voting rights. There are states like Georgia and North Carolina... Uh, I've forgotten whether it's Montana, one of those mountain states, which have done extraordinarily uh, ugly things by way of making it difficult for people to vote, uh, people of, in the minorities, and that has to be changed. Okay, finally, I want to take a few minutes just to tell you what something rather different that I think the Democrats should do now. And that is to create nonpartisan, extra-governmental public commissions to consider other future actions. What I have in mind is, for example, on this first issue, namely electoral reform, guaranteeing the right to vote, making national election days, work holidays, making registration easier, allowing Congress to campaign contributions and so on, replacing the Electoral College. And ask the American Political Science Association to set up a study group that would study these issues and come up with proposals that might be adopted by a future Congress because they can't be adopted right now. Uh, consider a constitutional Supreme Court amendment setting staggered 18-year terms for justices. Again, there are all kinds of uh, think tanks that could consider what to do about that, and they could be bipartisan or nonpartisan. Consider whether to require use of the alternate vote, the alternative vote, ranked choice instant runoff, which has been used this time in Maine, uh, and whether to enlarge the number of congressional districts and allow for multi-member districts, as the New York Times has lately editorial Uh, 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 suggested. Uh, I hope I'm not betraying a confidence. I asked Gary Jacobson what he thought about the uh, enlargement of congressional districts and multi-member districts, and he is our expert on these matters. And he said, I would be interested in it, except that it has zero chance.
So probably that's the case, but I think it wouldn't hurt to have it studied by a nonpartisan commission. <clears throat> we ought to study possibilities for achieving greater medical coverage while containing or reducing costs. Let's look at whether the uh, single-payer system worked or whether we should adopt something like the, the Swiss system, which requires insurance but has it done through nonprofit uh, insurance companies. You know, there are lots of ways to do this, but we need some uh, effort by think tanks to consider it. We need some further studies of how to protect against gun violence. We need ways of dealing with drug addiction, criminal sentencing, and imprisonment to assure employment, reduce inequality of opportunity, especially in the light of prospective advances in artificial intelligence. Look at strategies for revitalizing communities harmed by loss of employment due to foreign trade or what Schumpeter called creative destruction. We need to have strategies for control of the national debt and entitlement costs. We need proposals for trade policy that would encourage mutually beneficial international agreements instead of trade wars, programs for civic education, political engagement, and teaching tolerance. These are things which Congress cannot do right now. The agenda I've suggested is more than the Congress can possibly deal with, but at least they can deal with it in, in principle and deal with specific aspects of it. These larger questions really need national attention, and one way to get national attention would be for Nancy Pelosi and the Congress to ask uh, nonprofit organizations, and we have lots of them, to, uh, to initiate study groups that deal with these. How would Trump and the Republican-controlled Senate react to all the initiatives I've mentioned? I would say the answer is not obvious because we don't know what's going to happen with respect to Mueller's indictments and reports, uh, and that may uh, preoccupy uh, the, uh, the country for the next uh, six months or maybe a year. It could possibly lead to an impeachment uh, proposal in the House and then a trial in Senate. Uh, I, I would say right now there's no prospect that Trump would lose uh, an impeachment trial in the Senate, given his strength with the, uh, uh, the electorate that controls the Senate. Uh, and I think it might even backfire in the way that the uh, effort to impeach Bill Clinton backfired uh, on the Democrats and would only give him a platform and make him seem like a martyr being oppressed by all these wicked uh, Democrats and the media. Uh, and I think it's much better for the Democrats to do a, a restricted forms of investigation, leave everything else to Mueller and focus instead on the positive agenda that the country wants uh, 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 pursued. Um, so uh, and it may be that as public opinion shifts and it's begun to shift, you may find um, the Republicans having second thoughts about sticking with Trump. And you might find some of them being more willing to cooperate with the Democrats on some of these issues. A caveat. The Democrats could be stymied in 2020 by the advantage the Republicans enjoy in elections for the Senate. Uh, this is, uh, you, if you read in the newspapers, you'll often find people saying, ah, 2020 is going to be different because it'll be on the Democrats' turf. Uh, the GOP will be defending 22 of the 33 in play. But 14 of their seats are in safely red states. To win control of the Senate, even by the narrowest of margins, the Democrats will need to win almost all of the eight others, which is now unlikely. 
And Norman Ornstein has said that by 2040, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, which means that the remaining 30 states, 30%, will elect 70 of the 100 senators. Even if the Democrats win the White House, they will therefore still face blockage in the Senate and the Supreme Court. It will take a blue tsunami and not just a wave for the Democrats to win the Senate and the presidency. But with all of that, for the immediate future, if I were Nancy Pelosi and if I were given the speakership, I would work like hell to get a positive agenda passed for the good of the country and for the good of the Democratic Party. And I'll stop here. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.